Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Imperfect Leaders. If you like today's show, please consider sharing us with your friends. Until then, sit back and enjoy today's episode. Today's guest, Eric Joachimstaller, is the number one brand strategist on the planet. He's also a great leader and his journey will amaze you. He built from scratch a top-ranked professional services firm called Vivaldi, which regularly advises the world's most admired CEOs and chief marketing officers on their most complex transformational and brand issues. From humble roots growing up in a small town in Germany, to earning a doctorate at the Harvard Business School, Joachim Stoller has literally redefined the way companies think about brand, strategy, and leadership. It's no wonder why top talent, future leaders, and CEOs are all attracted to Vivaldi. So I hope you'll enjoy today's conversation with my good friend, Eric Joachim Stoller. Okay, Eric, so you're one of the most sought after experts in the world on brand strategy, innovation, and leadership. Tell me a little bit about this cool consulting firm you started called Vivaldi. I mean, what inspired you to start this firm and what kind of problems do you help people solve? (laughs) Good question. I felt, I sort of noticed that the value of a company um, is more and more related to the intangible asset Mm. rather than the tangible asset. And that trend actually has continued today. If you look at the average public company, about 80 or 90% is actually intangible. Google is a good example. Uh, um, And so so it's not the factory, it's not the physical assets they have, it's it's, it's intangible. And back then I I thought that uh, there was a lot of attention to tangible asset companies like GE or ExxonMobil were sort of like the top companies. And if you look now at so many years later, it's just flipped the other way around. You know, Microsoft is on the top, Apple is on the top, Amazon is on the top. And and these uh, companies that have much more intangible asset value. And I felt that uh, what sort of was wrong was that, that if that is the case, then then the brand should be sort of like a key way of capturing that intangible asset value. Mm-hmm. And brands was for me something that that made sense. There's a reason why. Number one, um, there was a there's a legal uh, a legal and regulatory framework to to actually uh, uh, regulate brands, and that's the U.S. PTO, the trademark office, where you have a registry of your of your asset on uh, from a legal perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also in the 90s, we worked, David Arca, the, the professor from Berkeley and I, we worked on, 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 on writing sort of books and articles on, on how do you manage brands as a strategic asset. And so, so I thought that there was also a professional sort of an, a, a managerial way of managing this asset. Uh, and when when I thought of like building a company on, on this brand, on, on helping companies around brands, was I felt this was sort of like um, our way of to helping CEOs and, and C-level leaders to say, hey, 
we spend so much time managing tangible asset. Let's manage, let's professionally, you know, we have accountants, we have lawyers, we have um, managers that manage our supply chain, we manage our factories, and we have, you know, we have all these rules and guidelines. But in brands, we still look look brand as a logo and as a, an advertising campaign. And maybe if we manage brands as an asset, we are actually creating enormous value for the companies. And that's what happened over the years. And yeah. so I know that, you know, CEOs and chief marketing officers absolutely love you guys and they keep coming back for your advice. I mean, give me an example or two of the kinds of challenges that you help these chief executives solve when it comes to brand. Um, I was just reviewing uh, um, a case study we worked very early on. You probably remember it, Birkenstock. Yeah. And and Birkenstock was this orthopedic shoe that uh, that nurses would use. And if you know Birkenstocks, you know you you have an academic bench, Jeff. You know, you know that uh, Birkenstocks were sort of the hippie type things, the two strap, three strap, the ugly shoe, healthy but ugly and uh, associated more with the '60s and flower power. The woman actually who started it, Margaret Fraser here in the U.S., started to sell Birkenstocks in the uh, out of the uh, stairs up at University of California at Berkeley. That's oh. out, out of shoe boxes, and and she made in those days in the '60s Birkenstock popular. But by the by the '90s, by 2000s, and in these early 2000s, be a, a Birkenstock used to be just uh, two straps and three straps. And I was I was just spending time reviewing the case study because the number two guy at the company at the time um, uh, contacted me and he says, "Hey, Eric, you should you should really write about Bergenstock because everything we did back then was it's become so successful." Oh. And so at the time, it was a two hundred million dollar brand. It was ignored by the Vogue magazines, by the popular uh, uh, editors and fashion editors. It was uh, ignored by specialty shoe stores who sort of like had Birkenstocks, but if they sold anything, it was a two-strap and three-strap. And, and we and Margaret Fraser, the president, came to us and he says, hey, Eric, we have a new generation of family members, Alex and uh, uh, Stefan and Christian at the time, the three brothers, come on board. Um, we need to do something about the brand, about reinventing that business. We're no longer cool. We are only cool with the, the older set. We want to find a new consumer. Can you make a Birkenstock cool again? Mm. Now, moving forward to last year, um, the two, the three brothers, um, the, the family sold the business to LVMH. Um, well, and I don't know if I ever told you this, Eric, but I grew up in the shoe business too in Louisville, Kentucky. So my dad and my grandfather had a little shoe store called Con Shoe Store. And we used to sell, I guess, shoes that competed against Birkenstock. And and we also used to sell those Nikes when they very first came out, the Nike, oh. the Nike Cortez and the Bart Bruins, the very first models. So I love shoe stories. But tell me a little more. How did you make a $200 million company grow so incredibly and become cool again? I mean, how do you do that? Yeah. The, the first thing we did was we actually analyzed what sells and what what shoes they have. So sort mm -hmm. of like a, almost a product portfolio analysis. Mm -hmm. And what we realized was while they have very, very cool products in already very well designed, they just didn't sell because the retailers 
the, the, the consumers only knew about the two straps and three strap ugly shoe. The retailers didn't know anything else. They didn't merchandise it properly. Mm -hmm. And 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 they and and there were also a lot of products in the lineup that that um that were simply not selling. They were sort of like they just produced and produced in Germany, sending it to California into a warehouse and, and generated their costs. And the first thing we did is, is we actually cut of the entire product lineup 33% of the of the of the of the shoes, uh, the skews. And and to them, that was a revolution. You can't do that because our sales will go down. They go like, no, it won't. Mm. Actually, sales will sales will go down, but they will the profits will go up. The the big thing we we that that, that was one part we did. Uh -huh. The second one was we we created this. We studied consumers. We did what we called wardrobe. Uh, journeys or we went into people's homes into four regions in the United States because Bergenstock is very distributed in different ways uh, in, in these markets. California is very different than the Southeast. And, and we did it this, we, we, we asked people uh, in their homes, you know, these ethnographic studies, uh, what, what do you do to uh, go in your, in your closet and show me what you have in your wardrobe? And they would sort of like show the shoes and the, the, and how they dress in the morning, you know, what they choose, how they make choices and things like that. And, and forgive me, but this was, this was, you know, decades ago. So people yeah. weren't doing these things, knocking on doors and going into houses back then, were they? That was quite, quite uh, new, I, I, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> it was especially quite, quite um, important for the, for the company because Bergenstock fundamentally was a sales organization. Mm -hmm. They they designed something and they had salespeople. So for us to come with an ethnography approach to to understanding uh, consumers' wardrobes was an, uh, very unusual. They go like, "What the hell is that? And how are we going to sell something here?" You know, and and but it was, worked. Yeah. So what what happens is we identified from this a consumer. There's a there's a consumer we call them the comfort seeker. Mm -hmm. And that consumer was a traditional Bergenstock consumer. Mm -hmm. And then we found a consumer that likes the comfort, but they also like style. They tend to be very young people. In those days, we didn't have Gen, Gen Z type uh, cl classifications. It came a little later. And, and, what, and, and we, we call them the independent. There were people who said, look, look, I don't care about fashion trends or how, how my looks about others. I have my own inner conviction about what I like. Mm. They are not driven by the fashion trends. Those who would be the fashionistas, they would never buy Birkenstock. They would say, no, this is the old hippie stuff. But we found this one segment, it's a huge segment we, we identified, that actually says, I love fashion, but it's I'm going to do it from the inner conviction, the inner directed one. And we said, this is the segment that is going to love the Birkenstocks. And based on that, we did then a massive amount of survey research uh, and a segmentation study. And, and we convinced uh, uh, them to not focus on the comfort seeker, the traditional, to spend all the, all the investments we had on, on, on marketing to, to invest on this independent segment of consumers. Mm -hmm. And then what we did is, is the, 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 in order to prove that it works, we actually, we, we went on Broadway here in New York. On Broadway, left and right on Broadway, a certain section, you have one shoe store, like your car shoe store, like your family business, 
one next to the other. <laughs> and if you want to create a trend, you need to be in those specialty stores because that's in Soho. That is where the cool people go. And you need to convince those retailers, the specialty retailers that have that image that uh, where people go in. Um, and you had to convince them about Birkenstock. And we created something because, because the salespeople didn't want to sell Birkenstock, only two straps and three straps. What we did is, is we, we created a freestanding merchandiser where there was a two strap and three straps, but also the coolest additional models from Birkenstock. They were all in there. And, um, and then we, are, we, we insisted on the, 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 these retailers. We had a selection of, I think it was 40 retailers that we, where we tested it out. Mm-hmm. We convinced them that, that they should have that freestanding merch, Birkenstock uh, branded, free FME, FEM, free, free, free experiential merchandiser, it's called. Mm-hmm. And, and we had people in the store located, uh, people from Vivaldi, and outside the store, and we monitored people's behaviors. Mm. And when they came out the store, we actually did some exit interview. Hey, we just heard, we just we just noticed you got a, a Birkenstock bag here. Uh, can we talk to you a bit a bit about it? So we we actually monitored a controlled experimentation, and 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 here's that that was one of the, the the success factors where we actually showed in retail that it worked. And, and one of the things that was sort of so important from a brand perspective, mm-hmm. Bergenstock, because, because Bergenstock was associated with two straps and, and three straps, they decided that, well, nobody wants to buy two straps and three straps, the Bergenstocks. So they developed certain sub-brands and the sub-brands actually were very cool Bergenstock shoes. But what happens is people say, I would not buy Bergenstock, I mm-hmm. would buy the sub-brand. Um, mm. uh, um, a, a sort of a particular model and we actually said that makes no sense because you get famous you, you everybody thinks of Birkenstock as two two straps three straps and and then then people think of these other brands uh, that they really really like and 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 we said let's get rid of sub brands they are variants we, we obviously identify them as certain models but let's focus on Birkenstock we need to reinvent Birkenstock, mm-hmm. not these sub-brands. The sub-brands distract. We need to get Ber- the, the, the Birkenstock cool again. And by, by doing that, suddenly suddenly, what, what, happened, what happened in those retail stores, people in this free, who saw those free, free experiential merchandises, they said, wow, mm-hmm. I didn't know there was Birkenstock. I love Birkenstock. This is oh. a Birkenstock model. Oh, this is so cool. And um, and so that that generated um, um, uh, that change that started to change the image, not mm-hmm. only of the consumers who bought shopping, who saw some the real Birkenstock with all the other product lineup that we kept. Um, they also also the salesperson now realized that hey, I can sell a very interesting Birkenstock models that are actually not just the two straps and three straps. And it, and um, yeah. it's such an interesting example and. You know, after the fact, it sounds so obvious, but I'm sure, you know, while you have this tight knit family control of a relatively small business, it's not easy to convince the CEO or the chief marketing officer, much less all of the different people in the retail outlets, like the salespeople. How do you, you know, how much like we were talking before the call about empathy and about persuasion, 
you know, how much of it is showing them the data, you know, versus just using your empathy and soft skills to convince them that they need to make a major strategic and brand change to stay relevant, you know, because at the time, I'm sure that's not easy, you know, even though it looks so obvious after the fact. Yeah, that is very, um, I think that um, there is sort of a, um, an advantage you have when you come as an outside consultant uh, like us. And we get sort of, we get longer horizons of trust than somebody that just does it from the inside. Mm -hmm. They say, well, they are the experts. I don't understand 100% what they are doing, but I'm going along with it. And, mm -hmm. and that was sort of one thing. And the other part was Margaret Fraser, the, the CEO, she was, she was a sort of a character because she was the one that originally founded the whole thing. Mm. Um, and, and so she had a bit of a mercurial sort of the a Steve Jobs type uh, uh, presence in the company. Mm -hmm. and, and that helped a lot because she was the one that, that read my book actually and says, mm -hmm. I need this. I need to be a brand driven organization. Mm -hmm. And, and Eric, what does that mean? Because I want to talk a little bit about thought leadership in this book. And in my opinion, and I think in a lot of people's opinions, one of the most seminal marketing books ever written, and that was written by you and your co-author that you mentioned earlier, David Auker yeah. from Berkeley. Why do you think this book became such a huge hit across the world and has stood the test of time? Um, we saw we sort of had a, a front row seat for 10, 15 years. And the book then sort of summarized our ideas and many other people's ideas. And, and the book also is, is, is a very practical book. It's sort of like, how do I build a brand? What, do, what is a brand strategy? Mm -hmm. And, and how, do I trans how do I look at a portfolio of, of, of products and, and an architecture? And I think it made it very practical uh, for people to apply. And it, and it was a success. It's still selling today very well. How do I apply, you know, brand strategy or brand architecture within this example of Birkenstock that you just gave? We defined a set of values um, uh, and the, what we call it, and in essence, a core belief that that Birkenstock stands for. And and I told you before that Birkenstock was very much a sales-driven organization and also very product-driven. Hey, two straps, three straps. And all of these other brands that we are products that we push out on a regular basis, mm -hmm. and we sell those. Mm -hmm. um, and and what we said is, no, you are not about the the the, the soul, the orthopedic soul, the, the the comfort, the the health aspect of that of the of the two strap and three strap. There is a belief system that we see that how Birkenstock operates, the beliefs they have, very similar to. To if you think what what uh, Steve Jobs has done, Apple is not about bits and bytes and computers. Apple is about think different. If you remember, mm -hmm. in, in it's a belief system, and and Nike is not just about the shoe; it's about a winning attitude. In the same way, we we that belief system we put that at the forefront, and then we said the belief it, system. It, sorry. But this yep. isn't just the belief system of the product or the brand. This is the belief system of the very culture of the people that are in the company. So it's really the combination of those two, yes. I think. Yes, it is. It is uh, the belief system of some of the people in the company, but also those of the consumers. The consumers 
that we believe that at the, at the time, you know, that that um, um, we had something we, we that the core actually we called it genuine spirit mm. because the, these people you have no idea in Movado, California. Actually, that's that's where the, the headquarters is. These people are genuine spirits. You know, they See, this, this is this is why you're the expert because I would have said something like. We have soul, and not just soul of the of the shoe, but soul of the spirit of the human. Yes. That's why that's why you're the expert, and I'm not, though. We, it's not coming from me; it's coming from a lot of people. But we we sort of noodled around with this uh, with the leadership team, sort of many people, the designers, the salespeople, everybody, and it it emerged over several months. And at some point in time, you go into get into this hail mary, holy smoke type. Uh, meetings where we all celebrate and 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 uh, we all celebrate and go like we got really something done. I can't believe we are arriving at this point and 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 then we sort of bring it together into a, into a, um, a sort of a system. We call it a brand strategy. You know mm -hmm. that there is sort of an idea behind it, a belief system on the genuine spirit. Then mm -hmm. there are a set of values. Then we say, how does it translate into a value proposition and a promise to the consumer? And, yeah. and so there's a system that we developed. David Ark and I developed like over, over many years. Mm -hmm. And that seems to work very well again and again. We are still doing the same thing today. So that's what I was going to ask. So, you know, this worked 30 years ago, a shoe company. <clears throat> but it, would it work today in an artificial intelligence company or, you know, the kinds of tech companies that we see today? Does this... Do these same theories and brand strategy and architecture hold up, you know, today? Um, the system has evolved, but I think we the, the fundamentals are very much the same. And we mm. we, we do it again and again and again. Uh, they, it's much more sophisticated today. We have a lot more data from mm. consumers, um, mm. uh, much more readily. But it, it the system works the same way. I work with currently on something with Virgin. I work with Adidas. I work on Vans in the shoe category, sort of, you, you should know. Um, mm -hmm. I work with Coca-Cola, we work with American Express. We uh, Globally, companies uh, in the B2B or B2C side or technology side, mm -hmm. it is, it, it's the system that works, that, that has become sort of a, um, a proven approach to define what you stand for and building a roadmap of mm -hmm. how do you drive a value. That, uh, Jeff, I have to tell you, the there is a change that in the last years there has been sort of a shift more to to digital marketing and performance marketing but in the last year actually all of that shift is going back to brand actually mm -hmm. so it's a it's a it's almost like a revival so what do you think that leaders of any company should be doing differently or better you know to to build stronger brands and you know because you hear so much about big companies and big yeah. brands being disrupted yeah. now what should be on the minds of CEOs and chief marketing officers across the world? So, you know, think of the Bergenstock as an example. Um, Bergenstock, the way they lost, they used to, they lost their ways is they said, oh, we have Bergenstock, this, this flagship brand that is more associated with hippies. Let's do all these other things. They created these other smaller brands, left and right. And they thought like, oh, maybe these other, that's so cool. We can do whatever we want to. And they're sort of uh, more colorful and more this and more that. And I think that fundamentally in the time where we are today, CEOs mm -hmm. 
need to think about reinventing the core business. Mm. And of course, with technology, rather than chasing romantic dreams, you know, venturing out into, into some startup world of this and then another venture fund of this, you know, fundamentally BMW as one example, must reinvent the core business in face of Tesla. It's not enough to, to fund a venture fund that, uh, that, uh, that experiments with some interesting ideas in the margin of the business. If you think about it in, 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 the, BM, in, in the automotive world, mm-hmm. why would you do that? You had the CEO or the, most of the CEOs have an age range between 45 and let's say 60 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, they have become, they've been mechanical engineers. Mm-hmm. They have learned the pipeline of pushing out products um, for many, many years. Not only they, they have learned it, they have been successful on one way of building BMW or Mercedes or Audi, namely pushing out products, mm-hmm. uh, combustion en- engines. And they are not electrical engineers. They are mechanical engineers. Mm-hmm. And here comes an electrical engineering, software engineering business that disrupts the, the, the traditional businesses. If you are 65, 55 years old, what do you do? You say, look, not on my clock for another five years and I'm done with this because, mm-hmm. because I, I'm a mechanical engineer. I don't know electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. So, so the success of a CEO who knows I can run the core business as it is um, uh, the success of a CEO is actually the biggest problem, and and by and mm. and you know, because of the pressure from from Wall Street and the pressure from from shareholders, mm. they say let's allocate a hundred million dollars on on some startup funding. Let's allocate, let's experiment into these new ways, and if it if something works, then we can actually consider it. Mm. And in the meantime, I'm I I get my back. Uh, uh, my, I get the, back, the people that are on my back, namely shareholders or Wall Street. I get them off my back because I can do what I do, what I know. I so, run the core business. So the this is way. fascinating. So you're saying that the actual success of the CEO, the past success of the CEOs, is one of the main inhibitors of them actually taking chances and doing what they need to do to be relevant in the future. Exactly. And, and here's a good example. Think of Nike. Nike is a very admirable company. Uh, it's one of the uh, all-time greats. Mm-hmm. Think of, uh, think of uh, um, Mark Parker was a, a, designs, a, CEO, a designer in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, but if you think about uh, uh, Nike, Nike in 2017 hired a technology CEO mm-hmm. replacing Mark Parker. Mm-hmm. Mark Parker was successful. You know, he created an incredible design tradition at Nike and things. Mm-hmm. But but the board, but the report replaced Mark Parker and brought in Tom Dono from from uh, uh, PayPal, I believe. And 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 guess what? What has happened now in the last five years? In 2017, Nike decided to change their entire business model to reinvent their business model. Instead of selling through retail stores. They cut fifty percent of the retailers. Hopefully, not your father's business. You know, retail business. He got out. He got out a while ago. He got out before that. That's good. He cut out. They cut out fifty percent of retail. Uh, that used to be the strength of Nike. You know, advertising, branding, and retail. And instead, they said we are going to go direct. We're actually competing with with retailers, and we're going direct. If you look now at Nike uh, to twenty twenty two. 
the biggest success, highest margin business is their direct-to-consumer wow. offense, D2C, but they call it direct-to-consumer offense. And it's oh, about nice. 20, 50 or 40% already of total. And it's growing like massively over, over the traditional retail business. That so take, that's, That takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? I mean, you have to be really... Uh, bold to say, hey, all of a sudden we're going to uh, not ignore, but place a yeah. lot less emphasis on what's worked so well for us in the past, yeah. do something totally different. And it also, I would think, takes a lot of uh, boldness and courage from the board of directors to say that our next CEO actually needs to embrace a totally different model. But that's exactly what you're saying the companies need to do. That's exactly what the companies need to do. At Nike, it was about... Um, a new CEO that came up with a technology tradition and makes basically the, uh, reinvents the company around technology. Mm. And at other companies, um, I think that in, in many companies, in my opinion, it's the governance that failed that fails the system. The, it's Tell the, me what the, you the mean board. by that. I think that in many in many ways, um, in order for a CEO to be able to do what what uh, a CEO is able to do. He needs to have a friendly board, mm -hmm. sort of board, people that buy into the CEO's uh, agenda. Mm -hmm. But those very, they, they, their job as a board member is not to celebrate the CEO and his agenda. They mm -hmm. also should independently, they're independent directors, they also should direct the company. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard for them to, to, to direct the, 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 the CEO when they have been invited to be on the board because they uh, they agree on his strategy or her strategy, mm -hmm. so so it's a governance problem because um, it is it is the strength of the board who who the, the CEO by title is the exec executive, mm -hmm. he executes the strategy, mm -hmm. and it's the board that is that should should say to a CEO, look, your time is up. And you we need a replacement, or you need to get another person next to you uh, that, let's say, a COO, a chief strategy officer, that leads us into the new direction. And and oftentimes this this governance simply fails because yeah um, because this the the board is too closely connected to the CEO because the CEOs hired people that agree with his or her strategy <laughs> and that basically rubber stamp things. And recently, I've talked to a lot of private equity, you know, firm, or not a lot, but some really interesting private equity firms that have said, you know, we're going to bring in some board members after we buy the company that can add color and context and flavor and experience and really challenge the CEO, because we think that's going to give them more of a chance to actually come up with a strategy and a brand that makes sense longer term. Now, it depends, you know, on everyone getting along and to use a word that we talked about earlier, safe space. Yeah. But if you can pull it off, it seems like that's an even better governance model because you have more perspective and more experience and people trust each other and you can make faster decisions. I mean, would you agree or disagree that that's, a, 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 if not a better governance model, at least a viable competitor? No, I, I think it is, unfortunately... Um... Unfortunately, it's absolutely a necessity of today because things are happening so fast. Uh, industries and categories are changing boundaries within categories uh, uh, for a category for an industry. It's changing so fast. So, so you, need, you need this almost this uh, duality between on one side, 
a CEO that sticks to a strategy and that knows how to execute. Mm -hmm. A CEO is so good at making the decision, executing it, mm -hmm. but but and, and executing on a on a game plan, a, mm -hmm. a strategy over a few years. But then you need the duality that that a, a challenging board mm -hmm. or or a set of people that could be outside of the board that mm -hmm. actually challenge the CEO. Yeah, yeah. But from your perspective, Eric, do you think if you can successfully have this duality, this governance model um, that is both uh, challenging the CEO, but also supporting an, an implementation oriented CEO, that that's a better model if you can pull that off from a strategy and from a brand vision point of view? Yes, I think, well, you know, I think that every situation is different. I just uh, I was on a panel a few days ago at one of the business schools here, and we invited uh, several CEOs, uh, three of them, mm -hmm. that went through a major transformation. Some CEOs are very good at executing, mm -hmm. but and they are they, they are focused, they are maniacal about it. They are very 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 good. And some CEOs are some CEOs are also have a sort of a almost like the duality in their heads. Mm -hmm. They 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 are constantly monitoring. They are constantly thinking about the next things. And they, they are, they are less, less execution oriented. So it depends on the kind of leader, CEO that you have on, on the job, that there is a different role for, 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 for the board. So it, from what I'm hearing you say, like uh, having an effective brand strategy really is the combination, not just of sort of linear brand thinking, but it's about culture. It's about values. It's about CE, the CEO leadership. Uh, and it's about governance. I mean, it's almost all of these things together in a system that really makes a brand relevant over time. You know, to me, brand, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, when years ago, when you and I sort of collaborated with a Harvard Business School and various professors there, yes. in those days, uh, somebody created a strategy, a business strategy by the book of Michael Porter. And when they had that strategy, then they say like this is our secret document of the strategy that we why we compete relative to those others and our competitive advantage and all of these things and and that mindset was totally wrong what i realized today is that the brand is the face of your business strategy mm -hmm. so engaging as a ceo in the dialogue of the brand really articulates to the ceo is this strategy really one that creates value to the consumers or customers? How do we create value in this business? Why, why do people work here? What is, the, what is the meaning of our business? What do we stand for and what do we stand against? And so engaging with a brand, uh, Jeff, is a way to engage with your business strategy and articulating that strategy to your people, to your suppliers, to your ecosystem partners, your to your consumers, to your employees, yeah, your employees, because yeah. you have no, uh, there is nothing more than 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 that keeps employees when they realize that they are on an amazing journey of something. So instead of putting that into your drawer and keeping that secret document that the Harvard professors used to sort of like talk about in in the old days, it's just wrong today. It's it's actually. You need to share it, and and the brand on the brand conversation and dialogue is a way to make that happen, to to engage everybody in it, and and inspire the younger people who who don't have the decision authority to say like, 
Why am I in that journey? Why am I even coming to work? That's so that's so beautifully said, Eric. And one thing that I've always loved about you is your passion around this and your charisma. But you know, you started as an academic and you still have that academic mindset as well as a mindset that's very practical and in the boardroom. I mean, let's just talk about your journey for a minute and let's go way back. I mean, where are you from and what was it like growing <laughs> up there? And why did you even decide to become a professor in the first place? <laughs> you know, I was born in Germany in a very, very small village. Um, people always laugh when they, when they realize where I'm from, <laughs> the Germans. I mean, least. we hear a little bit of an accent, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it was uh, right at the French border. And uh, oh. when I was very young, 15 years old, being being on the born just on the German side of the Rhine River, mm -hmm. I always longed for the other side of the of the river, which was France. So for many, for starting 15 years old, I, I actually went, uh, lived mostly in the French part. And, and uh, I, I went to boarding school in uh, Université de Lille, in Lille, in Normandy. Uh, then later, in, 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 I was in the uh, Université Sorbonne in Paris. Mm -hmm. And so it was always my, my, my thing. But I, I didn't, it didn't add up much, too much until I... What I, were you studying at Sorbonne? I mean, did you know at that time you wanted to go into business or branding? Or was it more like, were you more artistic or more analytic? I actually was, was nowhere. I did everything. I did art history. I actually was to Paris because I was interested in art history. <laughs> my family, my mother, they put some reason into me and and uh, uh, and and asked me to to actually study at a German university. So I finished there very quickly uh, in my relatively short period for 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 German university system. Mm -hmm. and i and i I focused actually on mathematical statistics and uh, economics, mm -hmm. uh, mathematical economics and computer computer science, which was at the time computer programming. and mm -hmm. and it got me a scholarship to the United States. Mm -hmm. um, then I then I uh, um, did a, a master's and a PhD. I did my postdoc at Harvard, and uh, and and I naturally fell into the academic world mm -hmm. because you know in Germany when you grew up where I was growing up, the, the academic pursuit is sort of one of the highest calling you can have. Mm -hmm. It is sort of intellectual. It's you make a contribution. It's uh, and and it it's sort of like something that is of. Of, of an incredible high pecking order. And, and somehow I, I sort of like had, being in this country, in the US, I've been so welcome. And, and when I went into branding, when I early sort of like thought about branding, I go like, it's this intangible asset that nobody can really define, but, but there is a way to put some numbers to it and quantify it because this is obviously a big part of the company value. So mm -hmm. how am I going to do that? And I figured out, some mathematical model to actually assess what what you cannot assess, uh, mm. um, what you what you you know. And uh, so, you, so you were one of the very first people back then that basically were you know took on this challenge of trying to quantify the economic value of these intangible assets that you knew in your heart had some tremendous value for every company out there, but nobody had figured this out yet. In in fact, you know the I remember Dennis Carter the the. The, the chief communication officer of Intel who would say, you know, hey guys, you academic professors, is there a way you can measure something that um, people don't really know much about? The micro, the, 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 the motherboard inside it that comes from Intel inside of an IBM computer, Dell computer. Mm -hmm. How can you measure? You don't touch it, you don't smell it, you don't see it. 
but it has a tremendous value because when it has an Intel inside processor, mm -hmm. the whole damn thing is much more valuable. How uh -huh. do you measure that? And, and there is a methodology, a, a mathematical ortho orthogonal designs, orthogonal designs it's called, mm -hmm. that you can actually figure that out. And that was sort of the, the breakthrough that, that I thought was uh, uh, so important. And once we realized that, Mm -hmm. We could actually talk to the CFO, mm -hmm. Chief Financial Officer, and the CEO. In those days, we only talked to marketing and brand people. But then suddenly the CEO says, wait, 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 wait. You mean this is the value of this? Oh. <laughs> you know, so it, it got real attention, and not by a market research survey, but mm -hmm. by a dollar and cents number that had gained credibility with a C-suite. So is this the reason why you started uh, Vivaldi or at the time, you know, brand leadership uh, company? And like, what was that yeah. like in the early days? You said, okay, well, you know, I, I'm a professor and I'm doing pretty well and I've come up yeah. with this model, but I see that, you know, the quantifying intangible assets is really resonating with chief financial yeah. officers and CEOs. Should I start a company? And that's a yeah. pretty big step. Uh, for most professors that don't want to take that entrepreneurial risk. I felt like if I do stay in the academics, I will do every year the same thing because every year I get a year older and the students stay the same age. And and I felt like that once you get uh, uh, to a level of a professor, you just keep doing the same thing over. And, and I felt at the time, the reason uh, um, why what bothered me so greatly is if you look at that time, at that time you had, the branding firms, like uh, the traditional New York branding firms, uh, Lippincott, mm. uh, Siegel and Gale, Wolf mm. Orleans, Landor, Interbrand, and all of those. Mm -hmm. And they were really design firms, corporate identity and design firms. Mm -hmm. To them, branding was about a visual identity, a, 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 a text, a font, um, and, and, and color, and, uh, and maybe a... a a character, you know, like a Snoopy or something like that. And on the other side, you had this B MBB, I call it, McKinsey, BCG, and Bain, the consulting companies. Mm -hmm. They had no sense about consumers. They don't mm -hmm. even know how to spell brand. And they were talking about sort of like a big strategy and all sorts of stuff. And, and, and I felt like there was this hole in the market, mm -hmm. neither the strategic McKinsey type and M Bain and BCG world, they don't get consumers. They don't have the sense and qualities even to understand consumers. They are, they are spreadsheet monkeys, you know, very good analysts that they can produce a good Excel spreadsheets for a CEO, but they have no sense of branding. And under designers and the corporate identity firms, I think that they sell a lot of hot air, you know, like this, just the just as visual identity isn't the brand. Mm. And we thought that there is this middle ground where we wanted to be um, uh, a, a bit as strategic as McKinsey, BCG and Bain, but mm. we also wanted to have the sense of consumers like an ad agency, mm. that the deep insights from a consumer point of view, I mentioned earlier the example of ethnographies, really deeply understanding consumers because in the end, Mm -hmm. You may put a dollar and cents value on the brand, but really a brand lives in the minds of consumers. And so to have to marry these two parts, I thought there was this whole and, and Vivaldi was the company that sort of like squarely positioned right there. 
It's amazing. And you saw the sweet sweet spot before anyone else. I mean, have you seen a lot of competitors come into the space or have McKinsey, Bain and BCG started to become more aware of how consumers are really thinking? Or do you still have a pretty sustainable niche like in the Vivaldi space? That is exactly what happened. And, and, and the space becomes now extremely competitive. Like it, it used to be called a blue ocean, you know, that middle ground. Mm-hmm. And now it's a red ocean. <laughs> so if like, you know, you're um, a future CEO that's in school right now or at Harvard Business School or, at, you know, wherever you are, or you're just an up and coming, you know, brand leader or strategic thinker or leader, what should you be thinking about? And like, what skills should you be developing now, given the way you know, that you see the world changing? Um, you know that we have something at Vivaldi, we call uh, a broad strategy, looking widely rather than focused. Mm-hmm. In the old days, um, it paid to, when markets were more stable, it paid for a CEO, someone in an organization to be focused on something and in ex- executing it and, and, and working through that in a, oftentimes a five-year plan. Mm-hmm. And today, I think looking at broadly uh, mm-hmm. uh, rather than narrowly, very focused forward, I think that's the ticket. Do you think like a good leader um, should go to school like uh, as an engineer, like a mechanical engineer, as you say, or would a liberal arts education be just as good for somebody that wants to become a leader or a visionary brand strategist one day? It could be. So I think that whether you're a liberal arts or an engineer, I think it matters the experiences you have. For example, I think that I think that you know managing a firm. Um, for example, what I think managing a firm in the past, um, uh, looking at my firm, mm-hmm. you needed to be very good at, let's say, segmentation or brand strategy. Mm-hmm. I think that that has changed a lot. You know, and and I spend a lot more time about what is empathy, what is culture. What is organization? So, so to your question, um, in the old days, you, 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 you leading a firm was to have a skill set that you are very good at and you admired for, and everything else you could sort of like uh, outsource, mm-hmm. if you will. Today, as a leader, you need to you need to be broad. You need to you need to develop your other your other weak spots, so to speak. If you are from liberal arts, you need to learn. A bit about technology. If you are from an engineering technology side, you need to learn about liberal arts. Is it hard just to be personal, Eric? Like, is it hard for you as a leader, you know, that has had such amazing success with Vivaldi and the growth of this and the number of people, you know, and somebody that comes from a mathematics and statistics and analytics and computer science background, you know, German guy with all this analytic rigor that now, you know, having to embrace empathy and uh, emotional intelligence and psychological safety. Does it feel uncomfortable for you or does it feel like, you know, do, do you enjoy this process? Uh, I find that I spend this because I know of my deficiencies, if you will. Um, um, I find um, I spend a significant uh, more a significant more time on it. And mm. what happens is that um what happens is that one thing that you learn when you when, when a company grows up and when you started on day one um, uh, and uh, the first 15 people that join you, 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 you're the everything. You know everything. You're the smartest guy in the, in the room, if you will, and, and you behave that way. 
-hmm. And when you are over 150 people or a thousand people, then you realize that uh, maybe you're not smart at all. <laughs> you know, and you have to learn. You have to. You have to actually, I guess, take pride in letting other people be the smartest people in the room, or you know, like exactly. helping them somehow succeed. You actually learn to shut up. Uh, you learn to uh, stop talking. You start listening a lot more, and you have and 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 you're no longer in control. You know, you in the mm -hmm. old days it was you are in control. You're in charge. And then, then when the company grows to a point, you you sort of listen very carefully, and you the the success model is when you when you when you you listen, you meet somebody in the company. Oftentimes, you don't know even their names, or you have seen them the first time, and they might be around for a while already. And then you you listen, and you go like, "Oh my God, that was so good!" Hmm. Or the or the client will tell me, "Hey, did you know?" Uh, you know, this one person, she is just amazing uh, at, at your company. I go like, I need to find out who that is. Was, was that a hard transition? You know, I just want you to be vulnerable for a second. Was that a yeah. hard transition for you to make as someone that is used to being in control and that's used to analyzing the data and that's used to being a great storyteller and talking? Was it hard for you to, you know, to shut up and listen? Yes. I think that it's the hardest part, especially when you get in your 40s you know everybody celebrates you and and you you sort of have all the successes and and you're being told you realize that unless you change your mindset and and start thinking about how am i developing people here mm -hmm. you know is this going to be a, a company of eric you know this or am i having a company that includes eric and i mm -hmm. see the journey and that one was extremely hard because people say you delegate when you when you start a company you don't delegate you know you do everything you know you do everything and yeah. and 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 starting to delegate but what you realize when you start doing that suddenly you 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 see people who do a lot better job than you and mm. you go like oh my god am i lucky that she is here at vivaldi what mm. am i going to do and you become you, you have to change your mindset in, in a significant way. So you've done so much, Eric, and I'm going to wrap this up, but you know, you've know you been this incredible thought leader, a great professor, a great entrepreneur, a great brand strategist. I mean, when people talk about you 10, 20, 50 years from now, what do you hope they'll say? Like, what do you want your legacy to be? If I, I, I said this many years ago to you, I want to build an enduring company. Mm -hmm. I don't want to buy, build a company that I, that can be sold. I can be. It can be sold any time if I want to, mm -hmm. but I want to build an enduring company, and in a company where people, uh, for a time of their life, can thrive. And mm -hmm. and 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 we. I spend a lot of time on that. You know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, where where I always say, what is enduring? You know, beyond me. And mm -hmm. now at now the, at at the age where I am, I realize that um, that. I'm not in, in most of the meetings anymore. I, I realize people pull me in here and there. And I, and, and I practice almost. Um, when I be in a leadership team meeting, I will say nothing because I want to see how, this, how it grows. And, and at some point in time, there is a, uh, the, you know, you look, it's almost like you create, it's, a, it's almost like a, it's, a, it's a beautiful journey as you see your journey sort of growing and, and going beyond uh, uh, yourself. There was a woman who just left and she spent hours talking to us about 
what it meant for her to be at Vivaldi and how does it make you feel? Oh, this is it. This is why you. This is really. It sounds a little uh, goofy or, or vulnerable, if you will, but that's really what makes. That's what really what you're working for anymore. So that kind of thing. You know, we we have now people in in Denmark. Um, a good a good example of a of a woman that now uh, it works from Denmark. We love her. She she worked in New York. We didn't have a Danish office. Now she, then she worked out of the London office. Then she worked out of the Munich office. And now she actually works globally with everybody. Uh, she has a child, and and, and now she has uh, uh, sort of certain certain situations. And and I can tell you, we have people in Thailand. We have people around the world in South Africa, around the world where people who have been part of the Vivaldi group and and who have been left and and they still are in the community and sometimes we work 12 hour time cycles and i think that's really that's a real beautiful thing to see you know to, to yeah see. and i could tell by just watching you uh that you're so passionate about that as your legacy and just creating a culture where people uh, feel their best and can do their best work and feel good about it makes you feel good which is so nice to see and yeah. i promise this is now my last question but what is your pitch to someone that's in, you know, undergraduate or graduate school that's considering launching a career at Vivaldi, you know, versus a BCG or one of these other, you know, more niche brand consultancies. We, we have a, a sort of a purpose, the uh, internal purpose, continuously writing the next chapter, how companies grow and prosper and people. Because continuously growing uh, or, or continuously writing the next chapter is a metaphor for cutting edge ideas about how companies uh, grow, uh, new thinking. Uh, and so what, what you learn at Vivaldi is you, you need in at Vivaldi, you need, you, need, you need an agenda. You need to answer yourself three questions. Number one is what is your professional agenda? Uh, why do you want to go to Vivaldi? How do you grow? You want to become a consultant or you want to prepare yourself to work at uh, Unilever or, the, or, the, or another brand company. Uh, that's sort of a, what's your development in terms of like I learn my profession. The second one is is what is your emotional agenda for Vivaldi? You know, you have a, a group of very very smart people, very ambitious people, and we are very much a, a, a touch and feel. You know, it's not like a, a you check in in that in in some computer and and then they give you a student ID or. A, an employee ID as one of these large companies. We are not very bureaucratic. These large companies are all managed in bureaucratic silos. And, and, and it's a, you're number 100, 1,100, 10,100, and you're, 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 you're thrown out on the street and at the, when, it, when it's sort of convenient and so forth. Very different than Vivaldi. So there's an emotional agenda and people have a real connection, a human connection. And the third one, and that's sort of specific to Vivaldi, you need to have an intellectual agenda, yeah. you know, continuously writing the next chapter. You, you're not getting good at brand strategy or good at business strategy or good at innovation strategy. You need to sort of like also have an intellectual curiosity and say, I want to, um, I want to be working with the greatest clients and with these people at Vivaldi that that I'm, oh my God, I can't believe that this is what we are working on right now. So it's a, we, 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 we have a lot of fun, I should say. Eric Jokerstaller, thank you so much for your time. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's been a great pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening, everyone, and we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you'd like to attend and join deep dive discussions, please visit www.imperfectleaders.com. Until then, we'll see you next week.